Chapter 15, The Faithfulness of God It is a good thing to give thanks unto thee, and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning, and thy faithfulness every night. As thy Son, while on earth, was loyal to thee, his heavenly Father, so now in heaven he is faithful to us, his earthly brethren. And in this knowledge we press on with every confident hope for all the years and centuries yet to come. Amen. As emphasised earlier, God's attributes are not isolated traits of his character, but facets of his unitary being. They are not things in themselves, they are rather thoughts by which we think of God, aspects of a perfect whole, names given to whatever we know to be true of the Godhead. To have a correct understanding of the attributes, it is necessary that we see them all as one. We can think of them separately, but they cannot be separated. All attributes assigned to God cannot differ in reality by reason of the perfect simplicity of God, although we in divers' ways use of God's divers' words says Nicholas of Cusa. Whence, although we attribute to God sight, hearing, taste, smell, touch, sense, reason and intellect, and so forth, according to the divers' significations of each word, yet in him sight is not other than hearing, or tasting, or smelling, or touching, or feeling, or understanding. And so all theology is said to be established in a circle, because any one of his attributes is affirmed of another. In studying any attribute, the essential oneness of all the attributes soon becomes apparent. We see, for instance, that if God is self-existent, he must be also self-sufficient. And if he has power, he, being infinite, must have all power. If he possesses knowledge, his infinitude assures us that he possesses all knowledge. Similarly, his immutability presupposes his faithfulness. If he is unchanging, it follows that he could not be unfaithful, since that would require him to change. Any failure within the divine character would argue imperfection, and since God is perfect, it could not occur. Thus the attributes explain each other and prove that they are but glimpses the mind enjoys of the absolutely perfect Godhead. All of God's acts are consistent with all of his attributes. No attribute contradicts any other, but all harmonise and blend into each other in the infinite abyss of the Godhead. All that God does agrees with all that God is, and being and doing are one in him. The familiar picture of God as often torn between his justice and his mercy is altogether false to the facts. To think of God as inclining first toward one and then toward another of his attributes is to imagine a God who is unsure of himself, frustrated and emotionally unstable, which of course is to say that the one of whom we are thinking is not the true God at all but a weak mental reflection of him badly out of focus. God being who he is cannot cease to be what he is and being what he is he cannot act out of character with himself. He is at once faithful and immutable, so all his words and acts must be and must remain faithful. 
Men become unfaithful out of desire, fear, weakness, loss of interest, or because of some strong influence from without. Obviously, none of these forces can affect God in any way. He is his own reason for all he is and does. He cannot be compelled from without, but ever speaks and acts from within himself by his own sovereign will as it pleases him. I think it might be demonstrated that almost every heresy that has afflicted the church through the years has arisen from believing about God things that are not true or from overemphasizing certain true things so as to obscure other things equally true. To magnify any attribute to the exclusion of another is to head straight for one of the dismal swamps of theology. And yet we are all constantly tempted to do just that. For instance, the Bible teaches that God is love. Some have interpreted this in such a way as virtually to deny that he is just, which the Bible also teaches. Others press the biblical doctrine of God's goodness so far that it is made to contradict his holiness. Or they make his compassion cancel out his truth. Still others understand the sovereignty of God in a way that destroys, or at least greatly diminishes, his goodness and love. We can hold a correct view of truth only by daring to believe everything God has said about himself. It is a grave responsibility that a man takes upon himself when he seeks to edit out of God's self-revelation such features as he in his ignorance deems objectionable. Blindness, in part, must surely fall upon any of us presumptuous enough to attempt such a thing. And it is wholly uncalled for. We need not fear to let the truth stand as it is written. There is no conflict among the divine attributes. God's being is unitary. He cannot divide himself and act at a given time from one of his attributes while the rest remain inactive. All that God is must accord with all that God does. Justice must be present in mercy and love in judgment, and so with all the divine attributes. The faithfulness of God is a datum of sound theology, but to the believer it becomes far more than that. It passes through the processes of the understanding and goes on to become nourishing food for the soul. For the scriptures not only teach truth, they show also its uses for mankind. The inspired writers were men of like passion with us, dwelling in the midst of life. What they learned about God became to them a sword, a shield, a hammer. It became their life motivation, their good hope and their confident expectation. From the objective facts of theology, their hearts made how many thousand joyous deductions and personal applications. The book of Psalms rings with glad thanksgiving for the faithfulness of God. The New Testament takes up the theme and celebrates the loyalty of God the Father and his Son Jesus Christ, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. And in the Apocalypse, Christ is seen astride a white horse riding toward his triumph, and the names he bears are faithful and true. Christian song, too, celebrates the attributes of God, and among them the divine faithfulness. In our hymnody, at its best, the attributes become the wellspring from which flow rivers of joyous melody. Some old hymn books may yet be found in which the hymns have no names. 
A line in italics above each one indicates its theme, and the worshipping heart cannot but rejoice in what it finds. God's glorious perfection celebrated, wisdom, majesty and goodness, omniscience, omnipotence and immutability, glory, mercy and grace. These are a few samples taken from a hymn book published in 1849. But everyone familiar with Christian hymnody knows that the stream of sacred song takes its rise far back in the early years of the church's existence. From the beginning, belief in the perfection of God brought sweet assurance to believing men and taught the ages to sing. Upon God's faithfulness rests our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as he is faithful will his covenant stand and his promises be honoured. Only as we have complete assurance that he is faithful, may we live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come. Every heart can make its own application of this truth and draw from it such conclusions as the truth suggests and its own needs bring into focus. The tempted, the anxious, the fearful, the discouraged may all find new hope and good cheer in the knowledge that our Heavenly Father is faithful. He will ever be true to his pledged word. The hard-pressed sons of the covenant may be sure that he will never remove his loving kindness from them nor suffer his faithfulness to fail. Happy the man whose hopes rely on Israel's God. He made the sky and earth and seas with all them train. His truth forever stands secure. He saves the oppressed, he feeds the poor, and none shall find his promise vain. Isaac Watts Chapter 16 The Goodness of God Do good in thy good pleasure unto us, O Lord. Act towards us, not as we deserve, but as it becomes thee, being the God thou art. So shall we have nothing to fear in this world or in that which is to come. Amen. The word good means so many things to so many persons that this brief study of the divine goodness begins with a definition. The meaning may be arrived at only by the use of a number of synonyms going out from and returning by different paths to the same place. When Christian theology says that God is good, it is not the same as saying he is righteous or holy. The holiness of God is trumpeted from the heavens and re-echoed on earth by saints and sages wherever God has revealed himself to men. However, we are not at this time considering his holiness but his goodness, which is quite another thing. The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of good will toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. That God is good is taught or implied on every page of the Bible and must be received as an article of faith as impregnable as the throne of God. It is a foundation stone for all sound thought about God and is necessary to moral sanity. 
To allow that God could be other than good is to deny the validity of all thought and end in the negation of every moral judgment. If God is not good, then there can be no distinction between kindness and cruelty, and heaven can be hell, and hell heaven. The goodness of God is the drive behind all the blessings he daily bestows upon us. God created us because he felt good in his heart and he redeemed us for the same reason. Julianne of Norwich, who lived 600 years ago, saw clearly that the ground of all blessedness is the goodness of God. Chapter 6 of her incredibly beautiful and perceptive little classic, Revelations of Divine Love, begins... This showing was made to learn our souls to cleave wisely to the goodness of God. Then she lists some of the mighty deeds God has wrought in our behalf, and after each one she adds, of his goodness. She saw that all of our religious activities and every means of grace, however right and useful they may be, are nothing until we understand that the unmerited, spontaneous goodness of God is back of all and underneath all his acts. Divine goodness as one of God's attributes is self-caused, infinite, perfect and eternal. Since God is immutable, he never varies in the intensity of his loving kindness. He has never been kinder than he is now, nor will he ever be less kind. He is no respecter of persons, but makes his sun to shine on the evil as well as on the good, and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. The cause of his goodness is in himself. The recipients of his goodness are all his beneficiaries without merit and without recompense. With this agrees reason, and the moral wisdom that knows itself runs to acknowledge that there can be no merit in human conduct, not even in the purest and the best. Always God's goodness is the ground of our expectation. Repentance, though necessary, is not meritorious, but a condition for receiving the gracious gift of pardon which God gives of his goodness. Prayer is not in itself meritorious. It lays God under no obligation or puts him in debt to any He hears prayer because he is good and for no other reason. Nor is faith meritorious. It is simply confidence in the goodness of God and the lack of it is not a reflection upon God's holy character. The whole outlook of mankind might be changed if we could all believe that we dwell under a friendly sky and that the God of heaven, though exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with us. But sin has made us timid and self-conscious, as well it might. Years of rebellion against God have bred in us a fear that cannot be overcome in a day. The captured rebel does not enter willingly the presence of the king he has so long fought unsuccessfully to overthrow. But if he is truly penitent, he may come, trusting only in the loving kindness of his Lord, and the past will not be held against him. Meister Eckhart encourages us to remember that when we return to God, even if our sins were as great in number as all mankind's put together, still God would not count them against us, but would have as much confidence in us as if we had never sinned. 
Now, someone who, in spite of his past sins, honestly wants to become reconciled to God may cautiously inquire, if I come to God, how will he act toward me? What kind of disposition has he? What will I find him to be like? The answer is that he will be found to be exactly like Jesus. He that hath seen me, said Jesus, hath seen the Father. Christ walked with men on earth that he might show them what God is like and make known the true nature of God to a race that had wrong ideas about him. This was only one of the things he did while here in the flesh, but this he did with beautiful perfection. From him we learn how God acts toward people, the hypocritical, the basically insincere, will find him cold and aloof as they once found Jesus, but the penitent will find him merciful, the self-condemned will find him generous and kind, to the frightened he is friendly, to the poor in spirit he is forgiving, to the ignorant considerate, to the weak gentle, to the stranger hospitable. By our own attitudes, we may determine our reception by him. Though the kindness of God is an infinite, overflowing fountain of cordiality, God will not force his attention upon us. If we would be welcomed as the prodigal was, we must come as the prodigal came. And when we so come, even though the Pharisees and the legalists sulk without, there will be a feast of welcome within, the music and dancing as the father takes his child again to his heart. The greatness of God rouses fear within us, but his goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him, to fear and not be afraid. That is the paradox of faith. O oh God, my hope, my heavenly rest, my all of happiness below, grant my importunate request to me, to me, thy goodness show. Thy beatific face display the brightness of eternal day. Before my faith's enlightened eyes, make all thy gracious goodness pass. Thy goodness is the sight I prize. Oh, might I see thy smiling face. Thy nature in my soul proclaim. Reveal thy love, thy glorious name. Charles Wesley <laughs>